Welcome to this episode of the podcast. Guess what you're going to hate? I'm Janine. That's your cue. Oh, and I'm Daryl. <laughs> and this is a podcast about exposing someone to the very worst and sometimes best, but mostly worst pop culture of the 2000s. This is my husband, Daryl. He's a good guy. He doesn't have any podcasts to promote, but he's here. That's that's all I can ask to be. <laughs> so Kate was unable to join me for this week, so I decided to wrangle my husband and fellow bad movie lover, Daryl Winfrey. I am a uh, longtime listener and uh, first-time talker. <laughs> you know, I say that you're a bad movie lover, but I, I think you do judge me for my terrible taste in movies sometimes. I mean, I've, I've been known to, to make certain comments, sure, but I, you're, you're growing. You're becoming a better, more rounded sort <laughs> of a connoisseur. All right. So as I understand it, you have a selection of movies for me this afternoon. When I was trying to think of 2000s type movies, for some reason, um, there's different genres that are emblematic of the 2000s, but for for me, it's bad comedies. This is like a very bad decade for very, oh, very yeah. bad comedy. I know you've already done Dodgeball. For what I was thinking of, there are two movies that stand out that have three actors apiece that are just absolutely peak 2000s. Oh, I'm ready. That's a uh, movie's Saving Silverman and Without a Paddle. Okay, and do they have the same three actors, or...? Um, Saving Silverman has uh, Jason Biggs, Steve Zahn, and Jack Black. While Without a Paddle has Matthew Lillard, Seth Green, and Dax Shepard. All gentlemen that you could maybe, at this time, probably put into a police lineup. And every witness who looked at them would say, hey, I recognize that guy from somewhere. But they would not be able to tell them apart. (laughs) So these two movies, they have like a similar three-person cast, all that stuff. But are they similar plot? There, it's a similar sort of uh, men trying to recapture a sense of just immaturity, absolute refusal to grow up, and I'm pretty sure, if I remember each correctly, um, some light smattering of weed humor. So just sort of like, ah. uh, you know, a movie today would be about people trying to grow up, and this is a movie about people obstinately refusing to grow up and still being painted as, like, heroic for refusing to do that. I mean, that feels like a lot of the movies in the 2000s were very much in line with the whole man-baby stoner type. Yes. Well, I mean, uh, there was, you know, George Bush was president, so we kind of <laughs> celebrated that guy. Just kind of, hey, let's have a beer with this guy. It was a very popular mentality <laughs> at the time. I mean, there was that other movie, that romantic comedy. I say comedy only because it's what it was marketed as and not as a reflection of how good the movie was. Failure to Launch, which is all about a dude who will not grow up. So I think the 2000s, just the men of the 2000s were very disappointing. Yes, this was uh, this was before being woke about anything was celebrated at all. <laughs> okay, so give me a rundown. Like, pitch these two movies to me. Which one should I watch? Okay, so I think both of them will really give you a window into the into the man-boy experience of the 2000s. So you have Saving Silverman. You have, if I recall, it's uh, Jason Biggs, who is the titular Silverman, and he has his friends Steve Zahn and Jack Black, and they are desperate to try to prevent him from getting married to this woman who's played by Amanda Peet. And they are, uh, they believe she is very controlling and manipulative. And because it's a 2000s movie, they're 
just like off the cuff misogynist sort of assumptions about her are completely true and she's an awful <laughs> monster and they are completely right in their objective to just free him from this evil woman's clutches. Wow. There's shenanigans that ensue and I'm pretty sure like if you want to get a really good idea of 2000s comedy there's a lot of uh, homophobia that comes in near the end that I think uh, would probably look pretty horrifying now. So I think it might be a good idea to shine some light on that. In contrast, you have uh, Without a Paddle, which is, you know, these three guys are, um, I believe their best friend has just died, and they are going on a uh, rafting trip in an attempt to celebrate him, and they run into D.B. Cooper, who is played by the one and only Burt Reynolds. Wait, D.B. Cooper, like the dude who stole the plane? Yes, stole the plane, stole the money. Yes, I'm sorry if that's a spoiler alert, but Burt Reynolds is getting Cooper in this movie. <laughs> Wait, so, like, this is, it's like a creative nonfiction? Like, what what's going on here? I mean, this could be, we since we don't know, and there are, you know, certain FBI files out there that we don't have access to, this could be completely nonfictional. <laughs> this could have been a documentary, I assume. <laughs> well, you know, uh, when you're saying Burt Reynolds, and then also, of course, Men Without a Paddle, and that just makes me think of that movie, you know, with the banjos. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that uh, Deliverance gets name-checked at least once. And, I mean, all three of the guys in that movie, Seth Green, Matthew Lillard, and Dax Shepard, have all done good things independent of this movie, but bringing them together is just, it's its a Neapolitan ice cream of awful. Both of these movies are bad, then. I think that maybe they might have redeeming qualities. I think that if you put them up against uh, Dodgeball, I think they would both look bad in comparison to Dodgeball, which is saying a lot. <laughs> That's the, the bar is very low, then, if Dodgeball is our... <laughs> <laughs> that is true. Our measurement for a good comedy, then, ugh. Um... <laughs> Then again, you know, Dodgeball had no reason to be as concise and like every plot actually tying up at the end. Yes, but neither of these movies had a reason for anything that happened in them at all. So, <laughs> so hmm, do I want to see a movie that is a bunch of misogynistic, terrible, pro problematic, homophobic, all that crap? Or do I want to watch a movie with Burt Reynolds in it? Hmm. Now, don't forget, there is also Jack Black in Saving Silverman. Hmm. Yeah. You know what, Daryl? I really thought that if anybody was going to offer me a good movie to watch, it would be the person who, you know, I've I've pledged in front of many to spend the rest of my life with. But Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Hmm. Well, oh, wait, can I can I give you one more qualifier to maybe balance against Burt Reynolds? Okay. Neil Diamond is in Saving Silverman. You've got Burt Reynolds versus Neil Diamond in a 70s cage match what? in these two films. <laughs> Why is Neil Diamond in Saving Silverman? I don't remember. I know he shows up near the end of it. I, I don't want to read it and spoil it because it has been a few years since I've seen it. I remember Neil Diamond showing up near the end. I think so. one of the characters is a fan of Neil Diamond. Okay, this is actually very conflicting because I do want to go on a tirade about mid-2000s man baby type media i thought you would however the whole db cooper thing that's really got my interest 
it is not a uh, it's not an HBO level prestige drama where <laughs> it's being investigated with uh, in a in a gray washed out filter. To be clear, this is going to be a movie that's predominantly jokes about like Matthew Lillard getting hit in the nuts. Just so <laughs> you're clear, I don't want to raise mm. your expectations too much. Without a paddle might be funnier, but I think you are going to want to talk about saving Silverman more. Okay, in other words, saving Silverman's going to make me angry. I think it will make you angry. <laughs> well, you know, it's been a long time. Oh, actually, on my last episode about Black Dahlia, I got very angry about misogyny then. So, I don't know. Maybe we need to take a break from misogyny. It's possible, but you know the world never really takes a break from misogyny. <laughs> Hashtag woke, Daryl. <laughs> okay, let's watch Saving Silverman. Okay, great. and booze? Do you like themed food? Do you like a mixture of high and lowbrow? Well then, welcome to Loaded Literature. We're your hosts. I'm Victoria. I'm Hale. And I'm Anya. This podcast began as a book club that expanded beyond our reading room. We cover one book in a month and break it down by analysis, background context, and adaptions, all of which will be paired with alcohol and food. So please come join our book club. Episodes air Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific time, wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find us on social media at LoadedLiteraturePodcast.com, uh, Loaded Lit Pod on Twitter, or Loaded Literature on Instagram. We all have our own individual social media, so please follow us there as well and come join the conversation. Okay, we're back. We just watched Saving Silverman and Daryl, why? Why did you make me watch this movie? Like I said before, it's emblematic of 2000s movies. It's something that I saw repeatedly on, on cable. And it's something that kind of, uh, it's one of those movies that when I think of 2000s comedies, just kind of shines out to me. Possibly because it's not worth remembering in any other context, like its quality, or its humor value, or its characters, or any other way. Just to the fact that, oh, this is a movie that I would only watch on like a uh, on a weekday sometime before Barack Obama was nominated for president, but after Hurricane Katrina. Like, somewhere in there, <laughs> that is sometime I would watch this movie unironically. But other than that, it doesn't fit into any other category that I might enjoy watching it. Okay, you can pretend that it's all that, but I think you should just admit you just really wanted me to watch a terrible movie. That is true. I did also, because, I mean, I know that you, you guys enjoy watching good movies because most people do enjoy <laughs> watching good movies but if you're gonna watch a 2000s movie like if you imagine movies as sort of a bell curve of quality like on the one end you got the really really bad like your black dahlias on the bad end <laughs> and on the other end you got your you know your godfathers your all about eves like your really really good movies and then right in the middle, your average. The 2000s are sort of in the bottom 75th percentile. <laughs> so you really need to kind of go from that bad end if you really want an, a, uh, an equitable sort of sample from the 2000s. So I thought that that would be fair. <laughs> so you mentioned that when you first watched this movie, even like mid-2000s, what, like 
14, 13 year old you Probably. thought that it was like distasteful. Did, what, what like do you remember from before we watched this movie really stood out to you about how bad this plot is? So like to be perfectly honest, you know, as like a younger sort of sort of boy, you have these sort of uh, feelings ingrained into you, like oh, you should be afraid of women, you should you know treat women they want as... your man juice exactly they want your man juice you they they are like an adversary to be conquered but at the same time i mean i think back then it felt a little bit more uh, f- even handed the sense that um that judith is the woman who is being manipulative but also it's really hard to see what uh, jd and uh, Steve Zahn's character, whose name I cannot remember off the top of my head. Wayne? Wayne. Yeah, J.D. and Wayne. What they do to her is um, so completely out of whack with <laughs> any sort of rational, moral activity. It's really hard to take them, not only like, uh, you're, you shouldn't even feel any sort of empathy towards them as characters, as human beings. You shouldn't even try to understand what they're doing to her. It's so insane, the lengths that they go to try to save Silverman, that it's um, it's it's unbelievable. Even for someone <laughs> who has been uh, ingrained with this sort of heteronormative lifestyle of, you know, gotta get the woman, gotta do this, gotta do that. It's ridiculous the number of, just, um, to, uh, from a surface level, the number of felonies that these people commit <laughs> in their in their attempt to save Silverman. It's crazy. I mean, Judith spends a solid, what, 60% of this movie kidnapped? Yes, and honestly, like, I don't want to get too, uh, too down on this or too real or whatnot, but the fact is that um, lots of women who uh, suffer violence or are kidnapped or whatnot, they have trouble getting out of that situation. They have trouble seeking some sort of rescue or relief. And it was honestly, like like I said, don't want to get too down on this. It was kind of a little creepy and a little sickening to see her running around and banging on people's doors. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to get too ahead of us, but the fact that she bangs on the door of a, of a uh, ambiguously Asian pervert who falls down the stairs and injures himself. And she is like, she outwits uh, JD and Wayne at every turn, but uh, she is obviously in distress from what happened. Yeah, it's very, very uncomfortable. And it did, I mean, there, I think you could definitely recut this movie to make it into, like, a, I don't know, maybe, like, a feminist, like, mystery, maybe horror. I don't know. Like, it's got some elements that if you took it out of context, like we are right now, really could be painted in a different light. So... Let's put all these moments back okay. into context. Okay. What do you say we do the plot yes, rundown? Yes, uh, completely. Uh, who goes first with that? Well, see, normally <laughs> I tend to ramble mm-hmm. when it goes for plot summaries, so I usually encourage Kate or my guest to do the plot summary and then I'll chime in. So I think there's a lot to talk about with this movie, so let's just kind of hit the high points when it comes to the plot, and then we can reflect on it as time okay, goes by. Okay, so this movie starts out... Uh, I had remembered, and I mentioned earlier, that Neil Diamond has uh, a role in it. <laughs> but this movie starts out very Neil Diamond-centric, which 
to uh, as a sort almost like a documentary. It or does, something. and as a preliminary matter, I kind of wondered if maybe you could slot in some other person into this role, like some other '70s singer songwriter, like your your James Taylors or who who have you. But it starts with uh, Neil Diamond centric, and also the strange thing about it is that it starts with Wayne narrating to the camera, which is a thematic device that we don't see ever again throughout the movie you're right because like he speaks to the camera like he's explaining the background of his friend group jd wayne and darren darren is the uh you know titular silverman in this film and he's framing this as if he's explaining this story to someone else and i have an idea about that so let's get back to that when we finish the plot review i have an idea of who he might be discussing it with i i, I think i might be able to predict who you're think what you're thinking of so let, yeah let's let's move on and see if we kind of uh, coincide in our theories here so um, as it goes on uh, there are flashbacks to the boys as they sort of grow up. And I think that we need to pinpoint sort of like um, when you're talking about serial killers <laughs> and you say like, this is the point where they were um, abused by their parents or like dress, put in a dress by their mothers and uh, forced to stand in a corner or they suffered head trauma. Like, I think we can identify the part where Wayne says that he would beat up this girl who is bullying him. It's actually a collection of girls who have teamed up to bully him, which is, again, sort of the ethos of the exactly. movie. That there are, there are women who are, like Sandy Perkis, who we'll get to later, women who are pure and beautiful and sexual creatures, but are the good women. And that's, yeah. you know, a very small percentage Versus of women. Versus the women who are manipulative and use society's views of gender in their favor. Kind of like... <laughs> that's almost all you, of them. Kind of like Gone Girl. Yes. You know? Yeah. <laughs> if, you, if you had Gone Girl that was uh, from the <laughs> husband's point of view. Yes. A wacky comedy. A wacky Gone comedy, Girl. yeah. Instead of, uh, instead of the... Um, Rosamund Pike's character. My wife framed me for murder. <laughs> Rosamund Pike's character is uh, the. It's it's. You know what? Now that you mention it, it is a movie. These are both movies, and you know, a book as well, about women who are brilliant sociopathic manipulators. <laughs> it really is, and about the dumb men who have no ability to stop them from doing what they do. Yeah, because I mean, not to jump too far forward, but way after Judith escapes from JD and Wayne, and she runs into Darren's arms, she lies about the setting that she was kidnapped in, just yes. like Rosamund Pike's character in Gone Girl. Wow, this is you know what's funny is that an. Actually, for the audience, uh, in case you don't know, I guessed it on the Equalizers podcast earlier this week, and I pitched a sequel for Jimmy Neutron called Gone Dad, where Jimmy Neutron is framed for the disappearance of the all of the adults in his town in the <laughs> in the Jimmy Neutron movie. So this is a very Gone Girl centered week for me. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to take this moment to you know of course i know who you are being married to you for several years now but our audience has no idea who you are and while you were talking about the psychology behind serial killers i realized that they might not know your educational background do you want to like tell people i don't want to say your qualifications but like where you're coming from well, I mean, as far as serial killers go, uh, in undergraduate, I was a, a psychology major 
uh, with a minor in criminal justice. So I'm basically Clarice Starling, obviously. <laughs> like, I know basically. what I'm doing. But, I mean, seriously, though, uh, my uh, further than that, I uh, have just, I graduated from law school in May, and I just took the bar last week. Yay. So I'm sort of uh, waiting on that. So um, that sort of uh, that sort of thing pervades my thinking. The loading screen of you being a lawyer is like at the ninety-seven percent. Exactly. It's like those old PlayStation One games where you get about ninety-nine percent, and the disc would whir really loudly, <laughs> and it would sound like a jet plane about to take off. And you know, this is the time when either your PlayStation One is about to crash, or you're going to get to the next level in Legend of Dragoon or whatever. Like, you're almost there. Either way. All that just to say, that is what Daryl's coming from when he can relate to Judith's character, who's actually a psychologist and uses not only her sexual manipulation, but also her psychological manipulation throughout the movie. Right, and uh, let's just say that um, I think it's not long after this, we get the, we get the flashbacks of the boys, and uh, I think it's pretty telling that from school... And then there's a cut to show them going from shotgunning uh, Pepsi to shotgunning beer. <laughs> These are basically boys who are doing the same thing that they were from about 15 to 30, 25, somewhere in there. At one point, when he's reminiscing about high school, he says that his old girlfriend, Sandy Perkis, who does come back into play in this movie, moved away five years ago. So 18 plus five, wow, you know, around 23. And that's how old Jason Biggs was at that's the crazy. time they were filming this movie. I have a hard time believing that was how old Jack Black was, but okay. <laughs> right. But I think what's really weird is this movie throughout all of the stuff that goes on. Again, it doesn't, it frames the man baby mentality as something to strive for. Yes. Like, you know, like... <laughs> Darren is the type of dude that the Fab Five would burst in on and, like, <laughs> criticize his entire life and tell him to grow up. But we're supposed to be rooting against any force out there that wants him to mature. I would, uh, I, I don't know that I would disagree with that because there is a very strong impetus in this movie for the status quo, for everything that's the same. But the problem is that, I think the problem, part of the movie's problem is that. Uh, it shows these guys as sort of undesirable people to be. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of mixed message because they want to have it both ways. I want to show these guys in a humorous way as being slobs and weirdos and such, but also that they should not be intruded upon. Yeah. It just doesn't really make a lot of sense. It, uh, it's a problem that the movie really has trouble facing in that uh, we don't know what it's advocating it, Absolutely. For. And even Jason Biggs said in an interview with Rolling Stone when this movie released that this movie represents a universal issue with girlfriends controlling their boyfriends' lives. So this movie is supposed to stand for something. So when we go through this plot, we should be finding, like, I don't know, some sort of moral standpoint that it's coming from. But like you said, it's just nebulous and unclear because this idea of man babies versus, like, the timeless all the way back to Edmund Spencer's The Fairy Queen uh, perfection of male friendship, <laughs> you know, that kind of literary device, like, is also to be celebrated. But... What do we get at it? What, what does this movie actually do? And the thing is, it does practically nothing. So it opens with Neil Diamond because this friend group is actually a part of a Neil Diamond tribute band called Diamonds in the Rough. And after a concert, Darren tries to hit on this girl, but 
she says she's with a real entertainer, by which she means a mime. So he complains there's no women out there for him. Because Sandy, the girl from the cheerleading squad he liked, moved away a long time ago because her family wanted to work in the circus because they're all what you would call circus freaks. Like her mom's the bearded lady. Her dad's the strong man. Her brother is the dog boy. Which gets a very good uh, reference later on when uh, it turns out that he got rabies, <laughs> which is sort of a funny idea, but it doesn't really get followed up. It's one of the many times in this movie thinks it has a really good joke, but it just kind of falls flat because it's not structured well, which is sort of the biggest problem with this movie. It could have these problematic views. I mean, Animal hey, House has hey, really problematic views for a comedy, it, but the jokes are structured hey, well. Hey, I have an idea. Wouldn't it be really, really funny if, like... There was like a a dog boy, and then the the dog boy got rabies. That's funny, right? That's real funny. We can't let that stay on the floor, man. We got to put that in this movie. Yeah, what are we just supposed to do? Just let that wither on the vine? Like somebody's gonna be watching this movie and say, "Why didn't they make that joke?" That's why we got to do it. Yeah, come on. <laughs> so they are sitting in the bar, you know, commiserating about women not paying attention to them. All and while of course, they're wearing their Neil Diamond hair, uh, wigs. <laughs> yes. Uh, and like these V-neck 70s, you know. Sequins. Like... It's kind of fantastic. <laughs> Probably very scratchy, but very They're the stylish. male version of the singers from Mamma Mia yes. musical. <laughs> so enter the woman in red. Judith is reading a, a big French book. At wait, a wait, table. wait, don't get too far ahead, because uh, speaking of, you know, the 2000s, they, it is playing uh, Butterfly by Crazy Town. Which, I did not notice that. Yeah, it is playing one of the most 2000s, just like, um, rock rap garbage songs that have <laughs> ever been made. It's just really bad, I think it's just... You're my just, butterfly, sugar, baby, baby. come on, it's, it's just come, so come bad, it's just like, puts the point on it, that that's supposed to be a sexy song. Like, they're trying to insinuate <laughs> that people have had sex to this song. I can't really uh... not abide by that at all, it's bad. <laughs> Well, Judith is there trying to read a book, and a French book. Wayne, she's a smart person, of course. She's a psychologist, mm. and Wayne sees her and tries to get Darren to go talk to her, but he's like, "Oh no, 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 no!" And so Wayne goes over there, and this lady is trying to read a book. She very know? firmly rejects both of them, and it's not really. No I means suppose no. Back in the day, it's supposed to be like a bitchy thing that she's saying, but now it comes off as very assertive. She's saying. No, please leave me alone. I don't want to be hit on. It would have been, uh, it would have been a little bit uh, strange the way that it plays if she hadn't been reading a book because it does seem like she's just trying to read her book in peace. And she's. Uh, I mean, it, also, why go to a bar to read a book? It but... does seem a little. That's a little weird. But at the same time, you know, um, Wayne comes over to her and just does not read the signals at all. At all. He yeah he just stands there and uh, lies lies to J- to Darren. And, like, claims uh, that Judith was fawning over him, and so when yes. Darren comes back to the table, she is like, why are you here? Why are you talking to me? And he goes to go get a drink, and at the same time, the other singer from Tenacious D, he is playing a fat magician, trying to get her attention instead, so when Darren comes back, she basically claims him as her boyfriend to get the other guy to leave. Which is sort of a recognized self-defense technique these exactly. days. Exactly! It's like, you know... 
you often hear men complain that women don't give clear signals, you know, when they're at the bar, like they'll take advantage of you for drinks or whatever. And like she from the get go lets all of them know she's not interested. Yes. You know, but they like shoehorn their way into their life. And then, of course, because she's evil and a terrible woman, she ruins their lives. Right. Right. Because from the very get like from the very beginning of all of this, when he decides to try and make it up to her by ordering her a drink she changes his drink order because he asks for a beer and she goes, no, he'll have a gin and tonic. Which is kind of interesting. That's sort of seen as a, a sexy thing, right? For a man to order a woman a drink to anticipate her needs and to sort of figure out like, oh, this is actually what you really want. But when a woman does it to a man, especially back in the day, it's supposed to be sort of a creepy and controlling sort of thing. Yeah. I noticed that trope a few times. Like, this movie tries to be like, oh, well, this is abuse. If this were a man doing this to a woman, like, you would be flipping out over all this. Like, and the things she does are abusive. Like, I'm going to put that out there. Obviously, I don't condone someone manipulating a person's life and cutting them off from their friends, anything like that. But a lot of the stuff that she does is actually totally acceptable by men to do to women. Like, for example, one of the first things this movie shows as a, a reason why she's a terrible person is like six weeks later he gets her a gift to mark that they've been together like she doesn't really like it but it's a six week anniversary present it's not really something that any reasonable person would be forced to anticipate i think so he says he wants to have sex but she says she doesn't believe in premarital sex Again, making boundaries, making them clear, but of course he wants to pressure her into having sex. So she says they can find pleasure in other ways, and she sinks to her knee, her knees, and he's super happy because he thinks he's getting a blowjob, but no, she wants him to give her oral sex. And that's supposed to be really terrible and emasculating. And afterwards, you know, he wants her to go down on him, but she says she can't because she has sensitive gums. And he's like, oh, well, you know, I'm in the mood. And so she hands him, like, a rag and a porno mag and some lotion, which she just has. Pretty funny. That is one of the yeah. funnier scenes in the movie, that she has all of these male jerk-off supplies just at the ready. She meets Darren's friends, J.D. and Wayne, and... She willingly goes to them. She willingly goes to their house and goes to see them and talk to them. But um, it turns into a disaster when uh, there there is beer chugged onto her, and she has a salsa poured onto her. She, yeah, she, like, falls out of a chair. Like, but she's all there. of these things, like, she has every right to not like his friends. As a guy, it would be horrifying to me if another guy did that. If, if a woman did that to me. If anyone uh, put a... Um, put a beer uh beer chugging device up to my face and sprayed foam onto my face i would be disgusted no matter what yeah like again like it's really not clear like if we're supposed to side with you i mean obviously we're not supposed to because she's a bitch right Mm -hmm. but it's just it's weird because again if we're taking this from the 2018 standpoint a lot of the stuff she's mad about are valid. Like, if this was a post on, I don't know, what's a columnist that people write to? Oh, you you love Dan Savage. Yes. If you saw, if Judith wrote a letter to Savage Love about how, you know, she's trying to help her boyfriend mature and he's hanging around these people who are inconsiderate of her, like, everyone would say for her to, like, encourage him to get rid of these unproductive people. Dan Savage because... would tell her to have an affair and to try pegging. But other than that, yes. <laughs> 
Yeah. So again, this is the point of the whole movie. Judith wants Darren to leave JD and Wayne in the past. And of course, JD and Wayne don't want this. And at the beginning, JD is kind of like, oh, well, you know, really, what's the worst thing she's done other than get him to stop being in our band? Wayne describes what else she's done, like, of course, the butt implants thing, or even bad, manipulative. But I mean, as you'll you'll see as the movie goes on, the guys uh, engage in far more manipulative behavior than Judith does. Absolutely. Like, they lie to Darren's face, convince him at one point that judith is dead so like they decide they've got to do something about this so at first they meet up at judith's office and she says she charges 200 bucks an hour so they get their pocket change out and they buy two minutes of her time and they offer uh basically wayne's house as payment for her to leave darren alone and she straight up says he's my puppet and i am his puppet master like What human being would talk like that, by the way? A bitch, obviously. So Darren meets JD and Wayne at a restaurant and tells them that Judith proposed. And of course, being as emasculated as he is, he's going to take her last name. At the same time as they're talking in the restaurant, of course, Sandy shows up. Wayne is super excited because he thinks that, you know, Darren will drop everything, but he's brainwashed by Judy, right? Or sorry, Judith. JD and Wayne Wayne are like trying to figure out if how they can get Darren and Sandy back together. And when they show up at Darren's new place, which is Judith's house, they come at the same time that Judith is having an engagement party and they crash the party and fight with two men who Judith is basically, you know, again, if we try and see this from Judith's point of view, she doesn't want Darren to be without friends. She just wants him to have, like, a different caliber of friends. You know, people who, yeah, I mean, like, maybe it's snobby to want him to be friends with people who are professionals. But, like, she's encouraging him to be a more professional and mature person. And, like, why are we supposed to hate that? Yeah, it's a little strange because, um, is it maybe manipulative that she tells him not to see these guys anymore? And that she tries to foist on him a tax lawyer and a CPA? I mean, maybe a little bit. But at the same time, Wayne and JD, they show up to this house. They return uh, Darren's helmet, which is sort of ambiguous how much... Um, like if they stole it a, or not? Yeah, what the pretense is for them being there. And Judith, uh, to her credit, she takes it and she... You know, she's going to go give it back. And then Wayne and JD force themselves into the house past her uh, while she's protesting them, telling them not to do it. And then they start yelling and screaming and completely ruining her party. And they go and they pick a fight with these two guys who are, yeah, they're jerks, obviously. But at the same time, they have the complete right to be there while Wayne and JD don't, who then um, attack them physically. <laughs> and it's it contributes to the sense that Judith starts uh, screaming about this, but it is kind of scream-worthy when your party, even if it's a snobby party, it doesn't deserve to be ruined <laughs> by these two guys who are running around screaming like crazy people. Yeah, and like, really, what do JD and Wayne bring to the table for Darren? Absolutely nothing. Other than the fact they used to be friends in high school. Like, it's okay to grow from your friends. Because, like, okay, at this point, maybe like, well, Janine, like, they're his friends. He needs his friends. Their next step in their plan, they decide to kidnap Judith in order to make sure that Darren gets together with Sandy instead. They immediately go to criminal activity. And they legitimately break into Judith's house at night wearing full tactical makeup while JD (laughs) is wearing a fishnet stocking, but whatever. 
and Wayne finds Judith in bed and then tries to tranquilize her using the same gun he uses for his pest control business. Can you imagine how horrifying it would be to wake up in the middle of the night, this is true for anybody, and see someone who is aiming a gun at your face and is wearing tactical gear (laughs) and is, like, screaming at you? That would be so horrifying. Yeah. And the fact that she doesn't respond by screaming or throwing up her hands, but by going into some sort of martial arts, like, judo kick kind of thing it's supposed to be uh suggestive of her strange nature and her uh sort of fighting nature but it looks very assertive and it looks very admirable the fact that she starts fighting off these guys while she's wearing basically a gown yeah again if we cut this movie a different way she would be the hero of this movie definitely and so she actually ends up turning the gun back onto wayne who gets shot in the leg and even though that's not how tranquilizers work of course just his leg is numb and he shocks judith using a stun gun and he and jd throw her in the back of the car and Darren comes home to find a note that Judith never wants to see him again because of his stupid fake butt. Judith, meanwhile, is chained to a car engine in the guy's garage with a camera recording her. They are trying to convince Darren that Judith ran away. And, and Darren, you know, he's not going to just give up on his girlfriend. He's like, well, I mean, maybe she's still out there. You know, I'm going to do everything I can to get her back. And so Wayne is, of course, uh, very mad about this. Until she he finds out that she's dead. Yeah. And they decide to dig up a dead woman's grave and put it in Judith's car, and then run it off a cliff. This movie is at its absolute best when it embraces how morbid and how bizarre this situation is. And the cut between them, him saying the very specific, when she's dead, I will give her up, and then showing them digging up a grave is actually (laughs) funny in a completely unintentional way, I think. Before this happens, Wayne calls up Sandy to desperately try and get her to hook up with Darren, but of course Sandy is going to be a nun by the end of the week. As Wayne and Sandy are meeting, they're meeting in front of an adult bookstore and also a peep show kind of galleria, and it's supposed to be funny, I guess, that she's talking about being a nun, and they're walking in front of all these, like, triple X ads, but it doesn't really add up to an actual joke. It's just kind of oh, isn't it kind of strange that she's talking about all these principled religious themes when they're in front of this, uh, place in front of this business it's like legitimately the madonna whore dichotomy it is like legitimately because all of the jokes surrounding sandy's character are like you're such a slut oh no like i'm actually training to be a nun i'm not a slut and judith begins to manipulate her kidnappers jd and wayne and again very admirable this is something that if judith was on an episode of oprah back (laughs) in the day and she said oh i manipulated my kidnappers by telling them they were i was so smart and telling them that they were so caring and that uh i told them my name so that they would care about me and not kill me she would get like a standing ovation from the crowd yeah so she basically manipulates jd and then reveals she knows who he is and so wayne and jd freak out and they go to jail to meet their old coach who was mentioned early on in the movie as basically telling the boys that they should stay away from women because women will steal your man juice which is again basically the conceit of the entire movie yes definitely 
And he's played by the the absolutely incomparable R. Lee Ermey of Full Metal Jacket and uh, Mail Call from History Channel fame. He has some of the funniest lines because Wayne and JD go to jail to meet him. And he's in jail because he killed a referee, obviously. He uh, threw a threw a fourth down marker like a javelin and absolutely <laughs> just murked this dude, which I thought was pretty funny. So they say they want his advice and they start with Darren's dating this girl, Judith, and we kidnapped her and he's this killer. And then after clarification, he thinks about it and then says, you have to kill her. If you can dream it, you can do it. This is the best scene in the movie, without a doubt. (laughs) So they burst into the garage, say they're going to kill her, but she's a psychologist. She knows they can't kill her. And she's right. They they pussy out. They leave. And Darren meets up with Sandy for lunch. She's in her full nun habit. And he cries about Judith. And Sandy comforts him by singing Neil Diamond, which makes him happy. And then he... (laughs) She, like... Because they used to be on cheer together, and Sandy tries to lift Darren over her head like she used to, and accidentally throws him into the water, and then dives after him, and that's when they start their love story, basically. And after that, JD watches... JD and Sandy go to a laundromat, and in true creeper fashion, JD watches Sandy put on her underwear in the reflection of the laundry door. He finds her underwear in the dryer, and I was... He, like, basically sniffs it. I was really worried he was gonna, like, pocket it or something, which it reflects... (laughs) Back to the flashback at the beginning of the movie, where he holds her up over his head. He's looking up, and he's showing like there's the the camera showing his uh, gaze into her panties. Like, and it's like the same pair of panties, like same pink pair. It's it's absolutely insane. Yeah, it is. That would definitely have holes in it if she had been holding on to it for that long. Judith, meanwhile, helps JD realize that he's gay. Yeah, and why. <laughs> Yeah, while he's crying about that, she smashes a lamp over his head. And you mentioned that this movie was going to kind of go into homophobia. So I was kind of like waiting for it to be more like, I don't know, I guess I was kind of expecting, you remember like the end of Ace Ventura Pet Detective? It was not as bad as the end of Ace Ventura Pet Detective. Yeah. It was not, it's, it, I mean, it's supposed to be, it's almost kind of hard. You have to remember it in context that sort of the way I was talking about earlier, you have to think about the fact that they paused for laughs, the idea that Jack yeah. Black's character, J.D., is gay. But at the same time, it's not quite as mean-spirited as it could have been. Oh, absolutely. And the way that he kind of references it casually later is pretty funny. Yeah. So it's not as bad as it could have been. Judith escapes. This is the first of her escapes, like we mentioned before. And Darren thinks he spots her and he wrecks his Vespa while she is running to a door and like knocking on it for help. But he trips down the stairs. Desperate. Absolutely desperate trying to find her. And she steals Wayne's truck and drives off. And then Wayne tranquilizes her right outside of a police station like so <laughs> awful like she's right there she's so like close on to the rescue. doorstep of the police station and um he puts a tarp over her and tells the police it was like a killer goat from the zoo and they were like oh yeah cool thanks and he ties her up in the garage again and then jd admits that he's gay to wayne who like Thankfully, he didn't react as badly as he might have. He kind of acts like it's it's uh, it's weird that he didn't tell him, and he's like a little yeah. he's a little grossed out, which is bad. But at the same time, he's not uh, vomiting like you know Ace Ventura yeah. or Naked Gun thirty three and a third. He's just kind of put off by it. Yeah, and he tries to convince JD that Judith was just messing with his head. So Sandy and Darren end up meeting for dinner, and Judith 
keeps coming up in conversation. And Sandy is like second guessing. Maybe I should still be a nun because obviously Darren's not ready for this relationship. And so Darren desperately calls up Wayne for help. And Wayne attaches a device that will shock his nipples if he talks about Judith, which is definitely this part of the movie was definitely where like, okay, you're just you're just making up stuff now. Like... The, what I'm thinking of is maybe like an episode of Three's Company kind of thing where it's like, I'm going to listen in on your date and I'm going to tell you what to say. That's what a, I thought it was going to be. Yeah, that's what I thought it was going to be. But it's also, uh, it's like physical torture in a way yeah. that's got to uh, earn that R rating, you know? It's got to yeah. be so much worse. And of course, like the shocking device fails, catches on fire. He tries to put it out with a drink, but it sets the bar on fire. And San- he tries to explain it to Sandy and Sandy's like, oh, you're not over Judith. I'm going to leave. And so Darren runs the 30 miles to the Covenant to talk to Sandy, who then immediately forgives him. There was without a doubt supposed to be a scene in between those two. That was supposed to be a Wayne and JD scene. It was supposed to go in between those two scenes to sort of set it apart. But no, it's just, she says, I don't want to see you. And then 10 seconds later, she says, it's in my nature to forgive because I'm a nun. <laughs> and then they start making out in the covenant, obviously. Of course, because that's what definitely happens in a covenant, making out. That's the number one thing. <laughs> and Wayne brings Judith Arby's on the way back because she asked for it. That was kind of interesting. The fact that he was listening to her, I guess. And he asks her why she went after Darren. And apparently her backstory is she once dated an alpha male and his idea of having fun was going to Thailand and being in kickboxing tournaments and he died. That legitimately shocked me that she did actually have a flashback to explain some of her motivation. So she decided to only date sensitive guys after that. And she then tries to manipulate Wayne into thinking that she's attracted to him for being so manly, which like his character is not manly at all. So obviously the audience were like, Ugh, okay. But of course, it's supposed to be like every dude has an inflated ego, so he falls for it. And the gross, like, I don't know, fake meat drippings <laughs> from the Arby sandwich. It turns into softcore pornography at this yeah, point in the movie. Fall down onto her generous cleavage. And he wipes it off and she licks it off his finger and they start making out. He goes to take off the chains, but then he's like, hey, what am I doing? And she says, just just get rid of, just let go of one of my hands just one, and I'll take care of you. He does have one of the great lines in the movie. He goes, these goddamn <laughs> chains. That was the best Steve Zahn delivery in this movie. Someone's ringing the doorbell while she's basically, you know, giving him a hand job. So... He runs the door, and meanwhile, she steals the keys from his pocket, I guess, when he's going to answer it. Resourceful. Again, Oprah would have loved it. The coach shows up at their house, because apparently he was released because he had a new trial, and the judge was a sports fan, and I guess wants all referees to be a second class that you can murder with impunity. Again, I'm not a, I'm not a practicing attorney at this as of this recording. <laughs> That's definitely not how the justice system works, just to put it that way. The coach shows up and it was like, I need a place to stay. And they don't want him to stay because Judith is locked in the basement. While he's walking around the house, he asks if they went ahead and killed the girl they kidnapped. And they said they did, but then he sees the video on the TV and he tells them they have to kill her. And then he says he'll go take care of it. So he goes to the garage and Judith beats him up, then knees Wayne in the crotch and then escapes. So she manages to escape a second time. (laughs) Judith runs home to where Darren is and she sees Sandy and Darren making out on the couch, which like, you know, yes, she's supposed to be a bad person and manipulator. And she does lie about what happened to her while she was kidnapped. 
But wouldn't you be pretty pissed if you had been, like, held captive for a week and you come home and your fiancé has already moved on? This is why you're talking about the sort of distillation of the timeline. This is only supposed to be a couple days, even though it feels like approximately 18 hours in movie time when you're watching the actual <laughs> movie. But, I mean, it really is. It's only a few hours. And I think to, uh, if you want to put it in Judith's column, to her credit, she never calls the cops. She never tries yeah. to put Wayne and JD in prison where they definitely belong. It just kind of happens as happenstance uh, a little bit later, but we'll get to that. It's not really clear if Judith says that Wayne and JD kidnapped her, but when Wayne shows up, Darren punches him. I guess he's punching him because Wayne said that Judith was dead. I don't know. It's not really clear, but he punches him and Wayne falls on Sandy's car because Sandy is trying to leave when Judith shows up. And then he also throws uh, JD onto Sandy's car and they both end up in jail. So maybe she did tell the police when they showed up for the fight. It's not clear. Maybe. And it's not they really use their clear. one phone call to call the coach to ask him to post bail. And <laughs> he doesn't want to help them until. Wayne lies about being like sodomized in prison. And so then he breaks them out of prison by running into the building with the pest control van. I, I, I again, not to uh, put my own background. This is definitely jail. There's no way it's prison. They have not had a trial yet or due process. Oh, sorry. Yeah. yeah jail. I know that there's a difference, but like, I don't really care. I don't think the person who wrote the movie did either. Because Darren has just visited them a few hours earlier to say that he's getting married. And they rush into Sandy's vow ceremonies while she's looking at the mother superior for advice, who then tells her to go. And then there's a funny part where they she turns to the other nun and goes, damn, we lost another one. Which Son of a bitch. Yeah, that was pretty good, too. <laughs> and Wayne gives her clothes to dress in. But of course, they're stripper clothes. And I mean, like, literally, like, you could not have found more stripper clothes in Pretty Woman. Like, it's like a red fluffy over, I guess, like a coat and a purple tube top and um, hot pants. They then kidnap Neil Diamond, and it really, the transition is not clear. They mentioned earlier, they said, oh, it's two weeks until he performs at the forum, and then... They uh, pull up to what is... Oh, and they can't go because they have a restraining order because uh, Jack Black's character, like, glomped Neil Diamond. Yes, and they pull up to a, a, an arena's sort of back-loading area, and then they kidnap Neil Diamond, which they, they carry him out in a bag, so you can't tell who it is, but then he sits up, and, which it's kind of spoiled because he appears earlier in the movie when Jack Black does glomp him, so you know he's, like been in front of the cameras for this horrible production. So Neil Diamond, of course, once they explain that it's for love, he agrees to help. He has some fantastic acting, the way he just completely plays it straight. I've so, I've told love stories my whole career. It's pretty fantastic. <laughs> yeah. And Neil Diamond shows up to the wedding right as, you know, of course, that line, if the, if anyone objects, please speak. Well, how does that go? If, uh, if uh, hold your peace and he objects and he has his guitar in hand, it's, even though he was not kidnapped with the guitar. <laughs> and he begins singing and Sandy shows up singing along. And so Darren pledges his love to her, rejecting Judith. And Judith cries and says, who's my someone? And of course, this is the best part of the movie. It Do you really want to explain it? It, it? it made you like die laughing. It is screamingly funny what happens next. Go ahead. Okay, so they have this moment 
uh, where Judith is uh, showing some of her humanity. She's starting to cry. And then Wayne rounds the corner, and he calls out to her, and she pushes in between... I thought it was a nice touch. She pushes in between Darren and Sandy, and she starts walking towards him, and it's framed in a really good way. Like, she is running to him, and she seamlessly... This is, again, fantastic acting by Amanda Peet. Picks up a chair and smashes him across the head, and just starts screaming at him about how there is no way he could have possibly thought that she really cared about him at all. (laughs) And then they start having what is honestly a pretty funny fight. They knock out each other's teeth, and then they go from choking each other to making out. It is honestly, if you had to have a funny point of this movie... Putting it as a as a button at the very end, it was a good choice because it yeah. kind of left. It was like an exit to the movie that was uh, good natured and funny, at least. I kind of think I would have preferred it if they hadn't started making out, but you can't ask for everything from the two thousand. That is true. And so basically, the movie ends with, of course, the coach reveals that he's also gay. Jack and- Black is carrying him, and. <laughs> On his back. Which, In, like, bridal style. Yes. Which, again, it's not, um, it's funny because it's, you know, it's the 2000s, like, oh, it's two men, that's funny. But it's not as, uh, as ill-intentioned as it could have been. It's definitely not as terrible as it could have been. Yes. And at the end, Sandy and Darren get married, Judith and Wayne get married, and they both have missing, matching missing teeth. And then, of course, Coach and JD get married. They do and- get married. They, I mean, they don't, they don't, uh... Uh, they don't cower away from that. They do both get they all three of them do get married, and uh, all six of them get married, and they do all in the movie singing on stage with Neil Diamond. All six of them, and uh, it was I thought it was a little touching that everybody got to sing. Judith was not. I was kind of thinking of other movies where maybe Judith would have been um, carried away or she would have been killed off screen or something like that. She does get to sing. She gets to hang out with everybody. And again, I guess, doesn't get these people in trouble. You know, you'd think that maybe a psychologist would recognize Stockholm Syndrome in herself, but whatever. She completely analyzes every personality defect that everyone else has. <laughs> does it expertly, but uh, I guess she failed to do it within herself. I know that we said we were going to try and go for straight plot review, but obviously we did not. But that's more fun anyway. We said everything that happened in this fucking movie. Yeah, you don't even have to watch this movie. Which, like, honestly... Don't. I'm sure you can find, like, a best of clip and just watch that instead. There is no and best of somebody, clip. And when some film editing student out there makes this into the horror movie it deserves to be, watch that version. Yeah, whenever Cinefix gets around to doing that, yeah, just do that, <laughs> really. I mean, it's... um. I think I told you before when we were starting to watch it, it was um, one of a handful of movies, like, with a scary movie to uh, not another teen movie. These were movies that I remembered watching on Comedy Central back around, like, 2007 that they played in very heavy rotation, which I don't really get because it's not very funny. It's not very... It does have its moments, but they're not cohesive to the plot at all. They're actually basically not related to the plot, other than that you need to know who the characters are. Yeah, I mean, if you think about movies like, um, uh, we talked about, like, 21 Jump Street, and uh, I'm thinking maybe Caddyshack or Ghostbusters or Airplane, movies that are your typical, like, very excellent comedies. It really just, most of the jokes in it just kind of fall flat. They really do. Which is, 
it, I mean, we might have been able to ignore, I think, you know, I might have been able to ignore. The rampant misogyny of this idea that women just want to control men by shackling them into marriage. Yeah, we could have at least been like, well, at least it was funny, but it really wasn't most of the time. You know, this movie is like, if you looked at those t-shirts that were popular in the 2000s that are like, a man and a woman, like in you know stick figure form, and it's oh, like I know game exactly over. What you're talking about, yeah, the you know, like three panel things. Yeah, I do. <laughs> yeah, it's like the you know their bride and groom, and bottom says game over. It's like this is that movie. <laughs> like, <laughs> I wanted to return back to this idea about who is Wayne talking to, and the fact is, like he's sitting in an easy chair and looking at the couch, and you know, I think maybe this is. <laughs> This is like how I met your mother. He is telling his children the story of how he kidnapped their their mother. That is very interesting. I like that a lot. Uh, I have to admit, though, that my idea for what was going on was that he was trying to explain this in a sense of this is why I have multiple felony convictions on my record because they <laughs> broke out of a jail. There is no way that this these yeah. uh, warrants. The cops aren't going to no. forget that just because no, they got married. No, this is going to haunt you for the rest of your life. This is not how this works at all. So, Daryl, I think we have a unique opportunity here in that, you know, every movie episode, we ask someone to come up with a crime based on the movie mm-hmm. to encourage our listeners to go commit. And I think you kind of have a unique view on this because you do have a legal background. And I don't want to come up with a crime because there are so many crimes in yeah. this movie. I would love, you know, I know we don't have a lot of time, but either for you as a potential defense attorney to come up with a defense for these people, for J.D. and Wayne, or to tell me what they could be charged with. Okay, so you've got, um, you know, you have your conspiracy, just sort of a general trying to figure out what they're going to do about this. Um, and I think it's important to note that when you use an anesthetic on someone when they try to shoot Judith... You don't know how much it's going to take to knock out someone. It's very likely that you're going to murder someone if you shoot them with some sort of uh, depressant into their system. So honestly, I think that's probably pretty close to attempted murder. You've got your um, kidnapping, your false imprisonment, your uh, battery assault. There are just dozens of crimes that are committed in this movie. So could you come up with a defense for these 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 two boys? It is love. It's love. I mean, what is... You, we talk about insanity, but what is more insane than love? This is a long-standing tradition for a man to protect his friends. Yeah, what makes you do something that goes against your own interests, that makes you act in a way that is against the rational laws of man more than love? Really? like That's beautiful, Daryl. Thank you. That's absolutely beautiful. Well, thank you so much for joining me today and forced me to watch this awful movie, but at least giving me something to complain about. So you know how much I love that. I know. I know you love complaining. That's because I'm your husband and I really appreciate you giving me a, a yeah, time yeah, yeah. to game over. <laughs> Don't get married. Women will just <laughs> nag all day. They're the worst. <laughs> You can find our website at hatepodcast.com. You can find us on Facebook at Guess What You're Gonna Hate, on Instagram and Twitter at Hate Podcast. And if you ever have any suggestions for shows, anything that you want us to review or talk about, you can send that to Guess What You're Gonna Hate at gmail.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you very much. <laughs>